Charles Dickens opens his classic novel, The Tale of Two Cities, with these words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. As we finish these opening scenes of 1 Samuel, we are introduced to a second family. Last week, we were introduced to the family of Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. And we saw the goodness in this family as they sought to serve and worship the Lord in obedience to his commandments. We saw the blessing of God in giving this barren woman a child. And now we are introduced to a second family, and we discover that indeed it truly was the best of times and the worst of times. So if you've read ahead in preparation for today, you know that we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 12, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And this is a really heavy message because there's not much good news in this chapter. In fact, we see that there is such wickedness has become so common in God's people that it's even come into the very place that God has set apart for worship to him. It's come to the tabernacle. The priests of all people, the priests should be holy. And yet we find that they are wicked and worthless men. They would be better servants of a false god than any doorkeeper for the true and living God. And the bulk of our passage is describing the fall of this wicked family. And yet there are glimpses of hope in a family that is faithful to obey God's word. And so we as readers are called to honor the Lord, for in so doing we find life. There's no mistaking there's a pointed contrast between these two families. One, humble and dependent on God. The other, proud, wicked, and ignorant of God. We could use family language all day, and we will use it frequently this morning, but I hope you hear that this isn't just about mother, father, children, but this is a pointed message to each and every one of us as individuals. So if you look at the passage, I'm going to arrange the conversation this morning a little bit differently. I'm going to take a great long look at this wicked family who will experience death that we see in verses 12 through 17. And again, it returns to them in verses 22 through 25. And then the lengthy word of the Lord comes in verse 27 through 36. These three chunks all revolve around this one family. And that is Eli and his household. And then next we are going to look at the realities that there is hope even in such a dark time as we see it in a faithful family. So you'll notice verses 18 through 21. You'll also notice verse 26. And then we'll conclude our time this morning with a very pointed call to hear God's word and obey it. And that comes in verse 30. So let's dig in. In the ESV translation, verse 12, we are told that 
these, Eli was very old. I'm sorry. Eli, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And that word phrase, worthless men, is in the Hebrew, sons of Belial. Now, this is an interesting thing, and it's very easy to miss it. So in case you did, uh, don't feel bad about that. But it is exactly the same phrase that Hannah used back in chapter 1 and verse 16 when Eli confronts her as she is praying before the ark, and she's moving her lips, but she's not saying any words, and he accuses her of being drunk, and he says, put away your drink, woman. And she says... Oh, my Lord, don't think of your servant as a worthless woman. So here she's saying, don't associate me with these kind of people. And she truly wasn't. And here we're told that Eli, the priest's sons, were these kind of people. So right away we see that this is not going to be a good thing. This is not going to be a good story that we're reading this morning. The writer intentionally used it to show that Hannah was not an ungodly woman, but Eli's sons were ungodly. And this is just the beginning of the contrast between these two families and their sons. We're told these men had no respect for God. Now, verses 12 through 17 kind of give us the first round of a description of their actions. So we'll read that they were worthless men. And we're told about the customs of the priest when people were coming to offer a sacrifice. And the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that that fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. But that's not their only offense. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you only, uh, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Well, let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us. I mean, other than a big fork and you're taking a lot of stuff out of a pot or a kettle or a pan or something, and that you like a little fat with your meat. The problem is, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 7, there are in the law encoded rules and procedures by which were to be followed when someone brought an offering to the Lord. And in fact, one of the priestly benefits to the line of Aaron was that when people came and made an offering of a, of a sheep or goat or a bull, that the priests would, their livelihood, as it were, was sustained by the offerings of the people. So the priests were allowed to have the breast meat. And they were promised the right thigh as well. And this was the means by which the priest and his family survived. 
But what we find here is that these men wanted more than their portion, and in fact, the rest of the animal outside of that breast meat and that right thigh were to be devoted to the Lord and then to the one who was making the offering. That was their portion. They would literally eat and drink in the presence of God in a small manner of what we are going to do today. We are doing it as a sign of worship. We are doing it in the presence of God as an act of obedience. And so these priests were bullying their way to take more than their share. They weren't just stealing from the people, but they were stealing from God. Now, we know God doesn't need food to live. This is his portion. It's not to be touched. It's not because he needs it for sustenance. It is obedience. It's an act of worship. But that's not their only offense. Because Leviticus tells us as well that God instructed the priest that they were to burn the meat. The fat was to be offered on the altar, and that as it burned and cooked was to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And now these men are saying, even that portion we want for ourselves. Now this may be a stretch for us a little bit, but this is something extremely serious to God. And in fact, The people of Israel knew the rules, which is why they object in the text, and they're basically shut down by threat of force. Don't talk back or else is what we've read so far. So we find that in the very place where hospitality and obedience and holiness was to be demonstrated, the body of the covenant community of Israel was coming to a place where they were being abused where God was being dishonored, and where those who were to lead them in righteousness were actually providing a wicked example. But it doesn't stop there. So look down at verses 22 through 25. We're told Eli was very old. He's the high priest. These are his sons. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. What we see here is just another layer of their immorality. The very place where the Shekinah glory was, a place of smoke, of incense, of offering, a place of darkness that bespeaks the glory of God, has become a place where degenerate men prey on women and commit sexual immorality. And the condition of these sons' hearts, these priests, is further revealed in verse 25. When their father does finally rebuke them, they ignore him. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. These men had become so hardened in their sin that there was no repentance. 
There was no hope of repentance for them. And that is why God chose to destroy them. And this ought to be a warning to us that unrepentance can lead to such hardening in our hearts. You know, the the default of us gathering every Sunday, you know what that ought to do? It did it for me last night. I had to go to my son and apologize to him for losing my temper. You know why? Because I knew I was going to be gathering with God's people and I was going to be preaching his word to his people. I'm not trying to clean myself up for you. It's because I know that all this is in front of God. He wants me to confess my sin. And by his grace, we're having communion today so I can say I'm right with God and I'm right with my son. We ought to take these occasions of gathering with God's people so serious that it actually refines us spiritually. We are preparing to come, as Paul says to Timothy, to lift blameless and holy hands in prayer and worship. That we are taking sin seriously and that when the Spirit rebukes us, that we honor Him and we don't harden our hearts and tell Him, no, not now. Verses 27 through 36, we see that Eli's sons have rejected God's favor and mercy and His name. Man of God comes to Eli, verse 27 says, And thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? And here's what a priest should do. Go up to my altar, burn incense, wear an ephod before me. It's a sign of purity. It's a sign of obedience. And what these men were doing was nothing like this. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. And here's the damning word of the Lord to Eli through this prophet. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. This this is such a sad, sad time. There's no humility before God. There is no practicing of righteousness within this household. Their persistent, unrepentant sin is going to lead to death. And we're told that a man of God had to come to Eli. God's prophet confronting God's priest? How messed up is this picture? How unnatural should this hit us? These things, these men should be in lockstep with one another, proclaiming the glories of God, calling people to repentance and faith, not in opposition to one another. How sad it is that this place where the knowledge of God and the blessing of life should be known as a place devoid of such truth. God must confront this wicked family through a prophet, and his prophet recounts God's mercy. He chose Aaron out of the twelve tribes, the tribe of Levi. He made Aaron and his sons priests. They were to worship God according to his ways, verses 27 and 28. And they despised God's sacrifices. Even further, Eli has honored his sons above the Lord, verse 29. And therefore, what falls next from verse 31 is that God will judge this family. The priestly line would be taken away from Eli. 
It would be given to one of Aaron's other descendants, and Eli's house would suffer. And here's a really sad thing. As you look at this passage, and if you read through it this week, you know how sobering it is. The judgment is absolute. And the condemnation is because this man chose loyalty to his sons over loyalty to God. Now, let me just mess with you a little bit here in the best possible way. This is going to really upset some of us, but there is no greater loyalty or honor than what is due to our God. Your children are not to be worshipped. Your career is not an end-all. Your health, your vitality, your wealth, whatever it is, there is no greater loyalty for the Christian than our loyalty to God. And here's why we need to hear this. Because we can all become Eli. We can all choose something else over God. It's in our nature. His sin demonstrates this tragic reversal of priorities. He broke the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not only that, what comes after that, it's, it's then honoring parents. And, and it's then honoring the image bearers of God around you. It's not before God. We're not to love people more than we love God. Both the sons and their father are guilty of grievous sins against God. The sons are detailed in their deeds of extorting from people an offering that wasn't theirs, of sleeping with women and confusing worship at the holy place with all the other pagan prostitution that took place in the neighboring countries around them. The prophet has provided the priest a sign that God indeed is severely dealing with their judgment or their sins. And the, and the severity of their sentence matches the severity of the sins. So this gives us an idea of how holy our God is. The prophet says, there's a sign. And the sign is going to be that both of your sons are going to die the same day. On the same day. This is not going to be happenstance. It's not going to be a coincidence. And because Eli failed to honor God, God would no longer honor him. And in fact, the curse falls not only on Eli and his sons, but as the prophet continues, that he will cut off your strength. The Lord, the God of Israel, verse 30, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father would go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. What did we learn about Eli in verse 22? He's very old. We'll see in chapter 4 that he's like 90-some years old. And God says that's not going to be the nature of the house of Eli anymore. In fact, you will look at distress with an envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel in verse 32. There will not be an old man in your house forever. And, and so the priestly portion 
would now go to another family, and Eli's family, once the pinnacle of the recipients, would now have to do menial tasks, to be living basically on welfare as it relates to the priesthood rather than the best that God had intended. The only one of you that I will not cut off from my altar, he says in verse 33, shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. When did that happen? We'll see. Later in 1 Samuel, we see that there was a man named Doeg. He's an Edomite. And in chapter 22, he killed every single one of Eli's descendants. Seventy men, priests, were killed. Only one escaped. His name was Abiathar. And then we finally see this transition from an unfaithful priest, as what God says, to a faithful one in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart, not his own. Who will do what is in my mind and not his own desires. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That would ultimately take place when David's son Solomon ascends to the throne. And the first thing he does is he removes Abiathar from being a priest and he puts within his place a new priestly line through Zadok. God's word is going to be fulfilled in its entirety for Eli and his family in the space of 80 years. So here's something for us to consider. No matter how bad the church leaders are, here's a word of hope. The Lord will never abandon his people. A church may suffer under poor leadership, ungodly leadership. That's not new. We see it here in 1 Samuel. You go to the end of the Bible and you'll see it in Revelation in, in in the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira where they were tolerating false doctrine, where there was gross immorality within the church and all being prompted by its leaders. And thankfully, in our wisdom as a church, there's an understanding of how we are to remove such leaders. And in our statement of faith, if you're going through the discovery class, you heard it this morning, you read it in our Constitution, that the church has the authority and, I dare say, the responsibility to remove any elder whose life or teaching contradicts contradicts that of God's Word. The power is in the church. God has invested authority here. Last week, we saw, here's another interesting thing. We saw in Hannah's life and circumstances, her affliction actually drove her closer to God, right? But here we see how unbridled greed and lust actually leads one away from God. These men took food by force that was dedicated to God. By their cunning, they seduced women. This is a stark contrast. If you just look up to chapter 2 and verse 4, you see Hannah's prayer that she describes what God will do. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Eli's family has the power in this moment, but it will be taken from them by God. 
we see a stark contrast between these two families. Elkanah serves the Lord in humility and dependence and obedience, while Eli's family is proud, abusive, and wicked. And here's something else I want you to think of. Something we must all understand. Proximity to God doesn't produce righteousness. Just because you are here this morning doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Because you come to church or you grow up in a Christian household doesn't by default make you a Christian. You can be as close to God as Eli and his sons were and still be far from him. And this is a call for us to check our hearts, to consider what it is that is keeping us from knowing God. We're told right away in verse 12, not only were they worthless men, but they did not know the Lord. These were the men that were to be leading people in worship to God. How is it possible? There must have been something broken, the structure. There must have been some failure, some check and balance that wasn't care, carried out. It is possible for pastors to stand in pulpits and proclaim truth and not know that truth. That's why Paul lays out what he does in 1 Timothy 3 about watching their life and their doctrine. Both go step in step. We need to know our pastors. We need to know our elders. We need to make sure, not just through a structure, that they confess Christ, that they walk, they come to church, that they're trying to keep their families neat and tidy. No, but that they truly aren't driven by greed, that they're not given to compulsions of anger, that they're not impatient and quarrelsome, that they don't have besetting sins of drunkenness or gambling or anything else, that they're living in repentance and faith, and that that testimony is known not just within this body, but within the broader community. That you talk to their neighbors. Our church in Indiana I did that. I interviewed all the lay elders that were coming on. I interviewed their coworkers, their bosses. I tried to reach out to their neighbors. What are these guys like when nobody else is around from our church? Do they really care about spiritual things? Here's the reality. Elkanah and his family traveled a greater distance to worship at the tabernacle than Eli and his sons. So we need to make sure that our hearts are truly changed. That we are not just showing up each week to carry about a, a facade, to perpetuate a myth. We need to recognize that we truly are sinful and that God is holy and there's a great chasm between He and us. And we need to then cast ourselves on His mercy. Friend, have you done that? What is it that you're trusting in? Is it the pedigree? Is it the polish of your life? Is it your own self-discipline and your own ability to kind of pull yourselves up from your bootstraps? Is it, what is it that you're trusting in? If it's anything but Jesus, let me just say, you need to consider that. You're standing on sinking sand. When the, while death comes to those who reject righteousness and practice wickedness, Joy and the gift of life are given to those who walk with God. 
Let's go back to verse 19. Of verse 18, we're told to Samuel, even though Eli's worthless sons are doing what they were doing, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, in addition to Samuel. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. It is a hard life to live for Jesus when all those around you are not. But by God's grace, it can be done. With God's help, it can be done. Even this young boy, impressionable as he is, seeing men around him acting with reckless abandon, he still was able to worship the Lord and serve him. There's hope here. There's hope that God is going to do something. Look at verse 26. Again, as the narrator has shifted in verses 22 to 25 from Samuel and his family, he then adds this caveat in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature, that's his height, develop as a young man, and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So while the place of Israel has become, the the place of worship has become such a dangerous place to someone's faith, there still is hope that God is working and he will raise up someone who will lead his people into righteousness. It's slow. It's gradual. But never fear, Christian, God is always at work. The next generation of South Canyon's leaders and elders and deacons may very well be right here in this room today. They may be the ones who will say at some point in time, we're going to do a harvest offering as we look to our 100th year of serving Christ in this community. Can you imagine that? God's work endures. He will build his church. And not even sinful leaders can prevent him from accomplishing his plans and purposes. That's our hope, Christian. And so I want us to jump back to Eli's rhetorical question in verse 25. He says, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And these are really troubling words because, as Paul says in Romans 3, we've all sinned against God. So is there any hope for us? Are, Are we to just accept the fact that we're all flawed, we all have good days and bad days, And uh, we judge not lest we be judged. The really good, godly thing is to never call another person out for their sin, but to just, you know, hope that they'll change. Well, I don't think so. I think we see this longing also expressed by another person in the Old Testament. Is God going to put us all to death because of our sin? Job asked the same question in Job 33. Is there a mediator between God and us? 
In the New Testament, Paul says, yes, indeed, there is a mediator between God and man, and it is Christ Jesus. Amen? He is the one that makes us right. And if this is sweet news to your ears, because you recognize your sin and your farness from God, your rebellion against God, the sobering reality that a holy God will judge people, not just the hypocrites in the church, but all people, then I encourage you to ask him to cleanse you from every sin and to reconcile you to his Father. Jesus alone delivers us from judgment, and Jesus alone grants us life. Repent. Give your life to Christ. God has given us this task as a church to reconcile people to himself, to carry the message of the gospel forth. For God was in Christ reconciling to the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to you this morning through the foolishness of preaching. I mean, what other place do you go to? This is not a TED Talk. Like, I'm not that smart. So what in the world draws people to come together to listen to a 45, 50-minute, maybe longer sermon? It's the foolishness of preaching. It's the power of God whose word is alive that draws us in, that speaks to the need of our heart and the darkness of our heart, but also gives us hope, who calls us to real repentance, who promises us, I will forgive your sins. I will wash you and make you white as snow. Friend, this is, this is the appeal that we make to you this morning because God has done this for us. How could we not keep the, the cure to cancer a secret? I mean, like, really, how, how much of a jerk do you have to be to know the secret to curing people of cancer and to just take care of you and yours? That's not the, that's not the heart of a Christian. It ought not to be. We should want others to experience this joy, this, this freedom to truly worship God without fear of Him drawing back from us or expelling us. It's because of Christ that God welcomes us. And so God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with Him. If you have questions about this, any of the elders whose faces you see on the back of your bulletin would be happy to talk with you after the service. If we take these two families, we're going to find a lot of instruction. We find the reminder that God's grace is never to become an occasion for sin. He chose this family of Aaron's sons to be priests, and then by this time we see that they don't know God, and they're using that dignified sacred, holy office for their own selfish, greedy, sinful purposes. Never allow God's grace to become an occasion for sin. The privilege of serving God has inherent responsibilities that cannot be ignored. We can't be lazy either. Eli, his shame, his fault was, yes, he did rebuke his sons, but you know what he could have done beyond that? He may not have been able to prevent them from being immoral men and wicked men, but he can prevent them from doing that as priests. He should have removed them from the office. He should have kicked them out and banned them from serving the Lord. 
All Israel knew what was going on. They're crying out for justice. And Eli is quiet, protecting his house rather than God's house. When those in spiritual leadership lack holiness and respect for God's name, it should be no wonder that God's people become cynical about worship and righteousness. Now, it's not all on leaders. Leaders can be holy and people can be still sinful. I mean, we see the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, men, Ezekiel, that are set apart by God, speaking truth to a people who are stubborn and hard-hearted and wicked. But how good it is for a nation, for a church, to have godly leaders. What a blessing it is. Pray for your elders, church. Pray that God would keep them from sin. Pray as as they're married that God would help them to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, that they would be humble and tender. Pray that God would use them to replicate themselves and to not just take this gift of God of being an elder for their own benefit, but that they would, in a real sense, pay it forward and raise up and disciple other men who will then fill in the gap behind them as they age out or as God moves them somewhere else. What is going to restore true worship of God? How can righteousness be exalted? The answer comes as we look ahead to chapter 3 and verse 1. And this is a preview of next week. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Now that's been already said three times in chapter 2. You look at verse 11. You'll see it again in verse 18. Then you'll see it again in verse 26. But what's new is this. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. In other words, there was no fresh revelation from God. No one who was able to speak on his behalf. And yet God is saying that his word will and has the power to bring life and light to sinners. His truth will expose sin for what it is. His word will also offer hope to all who turn to him from worthless things. We know that God created his people by his transforming word. That God protects his church from false teachers by his word. The disciples understood this. We ought to obey God rather than man is what they said to that Jewish council. John tells us in John 1 that Jesus is the word of God. He is the messenger from God bringing life and understanding to the world. And we see it even here in this passage. Not even sinful, rebellious leaders can prevent God's will from being done. When Eli and his sons failed, it didn't stop God from making his name known. He's going to remove those in his way. He will accomplish his will. And it appears already, even this early, that this young boy Samuel is going to be the the vehicle, the tool in God's hand to bring a good word to God's people. He will build his house. And he does it through Christ. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 tells us that Jesus is a high priest, a faithful high priest. We see this faithful family is given life. I mentioned this already as we read. I got ahead of myself in my notes. But God shows his covenant love to Hannah. He graciously gives her five more children in verse 21. 
Davis says this in his commentary. I thought this is so true. No sacrifice ever seems to impoverish one of Yahweh's servants. You know what that means? You give your life to God, you won't be lacking. It's not that life is going to be easy. I'm not Joel Osteen here, okay? I'd have to grow up my hair and change my theology, and I'm not going to do either. Well, maybe the hair. I don't know. We'll see. Winter's coming, right? But we are not preaching a prosperity gospel here. But here's, here's Hannah's experience. Her song is proving itself yet again as you look at verses 6, 8, and the beginning of verse 9. She has spoken of this great reversal. God has provided children to one who is barren. It's been my experience, too, personally, in life and ministry. We have said goodbye to family so many times when we first got married and moved out of state. Again, when we finished seminary in Pennsylvania and we left friends there. And then again, more recently, as we left Indiana after 20 years there. Yet each time we have said goodbye to family and friends, you know what God has done? He has replaced those relationships. Not replaced. He has added to those relationships tenfold, a hundredfold. I mean, this has been a short time that we have been together. And, and my heart loves this church already. I mean, how, how can I say that we're lacking because of this great assembly that's here? How can I say that I have so you know, been such a good saint that I have denied myself some comforts in life and that God owes me something. No, He doesn't. He has been gracious and He has done abundantly above and beyond. Jesus speaks of this to His disciples, right? No one has forsaken houses, lands, or family for the kingdom's sake who will not receive tenfold or a hundredfold. This is why the body, the church, is so important to one another. Because you may be here for Ellsworth. You may be here for work. You may be here for school. But there is a family of God here for you that can help you in your journey for this time and this season that will strengthen you and be a blessing to you, who will comfort you, and who will also protect you from yourself and the dangers of the world. Lean into that. We, we want people to join this church, not because we want to build this church, but because we know that this is the means by which God intends to build each and every one of us, to sanctify us and to grow us. So here it is. Here's the call. You look at verse 30. I'm quickly running out of time. How is it that we see Samuel in the Lord's presence described positively, and Eli and his sons, also in the Lord's presence, are described as worthless men. We read these scattered statements about Samuel, which are purposefully made to give us as readers hope that God is slowly but surely raising up leaders who will shepherd his people according to his ways. And I think that's just like God, to bring a little light into the darkness, isn't it? You may have had a really bad week. Let me just say, there's hope because God is for you. He's not against you. Let me just say that as brothers and sisters in this congregation, we want to come around you and we want to pray for you. We want to help bear your burdens. We want to remind you that you are not alone in your struggle. God is good. 
He will give us a ray of hope in the midst of evil. Even in the darkest of times, God provides hope for his people. And thank the Lord that we are not suffering under such leadership as what we find here in 1 Samuel 2. The church has been given this responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. As ones who have received the gospel, we're called to walk humbly before the Lord. We're called to respond to his correction with not a deaf ear, but a tender heart. To truly honor and respect him and his service. Well, how do we do this? How do we not allow ourselves, how do we keep ourselves from becoming the sons of Eli? Well, first, as I've said, we need the gospel. We need Christ to change our hearts. We don't need church, we need Jesus. We may find Jesus in the church, but what we need more than anything is Jesus. And a real relationship with him, not just a bumper sticker, not just a little pithy thing that pops up on our news feed, but we need to know the real Jesus in the power of his resurrection. He killed sin for you, Christian. He defeated it. And the end of sin is death, and he defeated that too. How can we fear what this world offers us? Jesus is what we need. And so we need to seek the Lord in his word, and we need to obey that word. So purpose now that you will walk humbly with your God, that you will respect him and obey his commandments. Brethren, our security is never in men. It's in the Lord. And he will accomplish his plans. I know that there's so many other questions. I had one, and it's, it's how is it that God could judge Eli and his sons? We know that. I mean, he could judge them because they were wrong, but how could God do what he did to the rest of his family? How do we reconcile that? Well, I, I'm going to have to leave this one alone. Ezekiel chapter 18 has some really important truth for you. There we find that God judges the wicked according to their sin. And this is not only rehearsed for us in Ezekiel 18 in verse 4, in verse 14, verse 17, in verse 20, but we, always, we also read of it from Paul's words in Romans chapter 2. Joel mentioned it this morning in the discovery class. But if you read Romans 2 verses 3 through 8, you know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." And here's the, here's the truth that's hinted at in verse 30 of 1 Samuel 2. Verse 30 of 1 Samuel 2 says that God will honor those who honor him. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The secret is this. God will, as Paul says in Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury, wrath, and fury. The, the secret is this. God does not punish people for doing good. 
God punishes people for doing evil. And God will reward everyone who repents and turns and pursues him and commits themselves to him. He will honor those who honor him, and he will despise those who treat him lightly. And that's the warning for us this morning. I'd love to dig into it more, but we're out of time. This is an opportunity for us to hear really hard truths, but are life-giving truths. Like, you should not leave this morning, I hope you won't leave this morning, feeling defeated. I hope you'll leave this morning praising God for his gift of salvation in Christ, praising God for godly witnesses around you, with a purpose to share the gospel, with a purpose to pray for your elders, with a purpose to dedicate yourself to knowing the word and obeying the word, to lead your family in righteousness. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees that our children being raised in Christian homes and coming to South Canyon Baptist Church are going to be converted. The only hope for them is the same hope for us. It is that God would turn their hearts to him. So we ought to be praying with real urgency for the salvation of the young in our church, for the salvation of the lost who may be with us this morning. Lord, as we do that now, we pray simply that you would speak, Lord, that we would hear your words as words of life. Even the words of judgment are meant to turn us to the hope that you offer us through Christ. You're not vindictive. You're patient. You're merciful. You're long-suffering. In fact, the fact that we have not already been consumed for our sins is an evidence of your grace. The fact that we are hearing the gospel yet again this morning is an evidence that you want and long to draw people to yourselves through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us as believers to trust and obey you, to lean on you, to understand that you are our hope in life and in death. And Father, even now as we turn to this table and we receive communion and share it with one another, we pray that you would work in us to unite us not only to one another, but remind us of our union with Christ. As we publicly share this today, may we give once again an affirmation that we belong to you by grace. We live by grace, and we need more of that grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.